Let's uh, pray together, shall we? Father, thank you so much for your incredible kindness to us and your love for us. And we pray that this morning you'll enable us to experience something of that amazing love with which you father us and care for us and are kind to us. Pray that as we look at the gospel, we might be transformed and changed from bad to, in Mike's words, babe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you look on the study notes that Mike Tufnell's produced, you'll see that the call for this week is to be a babe. I don't know if any of you feel like a babe, but it's going to work for me well when we've got a christening at the next service. It'll be a good sermon illustration. But Mike's summary of this passage is don't be bad, be a babe. And babe, he says, stands for being a blessing everywhere. Um, being a blessing everywhere. So that's, uh, that's Mike's summary of the passage. So if you don't remember anything else this morning, um, be a babe and uh, try and remember why you were trying to be a babe later on today. <laughs> and here's a story to get us going. It's from an amazing magazine I picked up at New Wine. Um, and the magazine's entitled Iran, Fastest Growing Church. And it tells the story of a person in Iran who was heavily depressed, and there are many reasons why we might be depressed, some of them clinical, some of them spiritual, some emotional and physical, some due to our experiences. But out of Iran, 77 million people, according to the Journal of Psychiatry, 15 million are depressed, particularly in the cities. And Javid was one of these millions, um, and this is his story. I was born into a fanatical Muslim family in Tehran, When I was a child, my parents would wake me at five in the morning and say, come on, get up and say your prayers. If you don't, God will punish you. If I didn't keep the annual fast, they said the same thing, God will punish you. In the home, my mother and sister wore the veil. And when I became a young man, however, I committed a particular sin and felt very guilty. The guilt would not go. I thought the best thing was to go and see a mullah to get help. I talked with him for hours, asking him to tell me how to find peace. At the end, all he could say was, go away and don't sin again. Look, I replied, I committed that sin a month ago. I've not committed the sin again, but I feel terrible. And the mullah had nothing to say to me. I went home full of despair. Then one day I found an answer. When there was nobody in our house, I went round the house collecting every pill I could find. Then I swallowed them all in one go. I wanted to die. I became unconscious, but it wasn't the end. I opened my eyes in a hospital bed and a doctor was looking down on me. He said, you're a miracle. You should be dead. I thought to myself, I wish I was dead and I went back home still carrying my despair. One day my brother called me. He had become a Christian. He gave me a message and said, go to church. I managed to find a church in Tehran. I went unsure what to expect. The worship moved me, the preaching spoke to me, so I kept on going. But I did not understand the gospel. Then one evening it all opened up for me. God in Christ had given his life for my sins. The miller had no answer for my guilt, but Jesus did. He had shed his blood. I knelt in my God's presence, and tears of joy poured down my face. I'd never had a moment like this in my life. I was so happy that that, when the meeting was over, I ran down the street. I knew there were millions of others like me who were depressed. I knew they had no answer to their sin in their religious practices. So I had to share Jesus with them. I talked about his forgiveness wherever I went. Once I was the only passenger in a taxi and I started telling the driver, Ali, how Jesus had saved me from suicide. When I finished, Ali looked at me and asked me to open the dashboard. I did. It was full of pills. 
He said, this morning I vowed to kill myself. You were going to be my last passenger. I said, wait, I need to tell you more. After I'd shared, I prayed for Ali as I've prayed for hundreds and hundreds of Iranians who are depressed, and I gave him a New Testament. Ali looked at me with his eyes full of hope. It is no accident that you are my passenger today, he said. An amazing story of uh, two people's lives spared from uh, the bleakness of depression and guilt. In our passage, we're on page 1220, 12.1220. Peter is writing to us. Do you remember the author of this book? We always ask who's writing, where are they writing, why are they writing, don't we, when we read any piece of text at all. This is Peter, the man who had let Jesus down so badly at times, but who had been with him through his death and his resurrection who had walked with him along a beach after Jesus had been raised again. Can you imagine some of the questions he would have asked? We don't have them recorded for us in the Gospels. But, but wouldn't one of the questions you would have asked been, what have you been doing the last three days, Jesus? <laughs> don't you think that would have come out somewhere? What, you know, what, what happened? And in the last chapter, the bit that Nicola skipped through uh, last week, uh, as she was focusing on how we need to have Jesus as our Lord, It says that Jesus preached to the spirits who were in prison uh, on that Easter Saturday, whatever exactly that means. It says again in our passage today that the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Something went on for Jesus in that time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and we don't know the whole details of it, but we do know at the very least that God communicates to people and that God, through preaching, saves people and that God is wanting to save people all around him. And so Peter's speaking to us, and he's saying, look, because of the gospel, because Jesus died for you, because Jesus is in the business of resurrecting people, because people grabs people in a taxi in Iran and saves them from their depression, because that's the sort of Jesus that you've got, because he suffered for you, well, arm yourself with the same attitude as well. Why do they need the same attitude? Well, do you remember their context? This is towards the end of the apostles' life. It's not long now until he's going to be crucified, as, uh, as legend has it, probably true legend has it, upside down on a cross, because when they went to crucify him, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified the same way up as my Lord. It's, it's at the end of the time these people are facing extreme persecution for their faith. And he says, look, if you suffer in your body, you are done with sin. As a result, you do not live the rest of your earthly life for mere human desires, but rather for the will of God. You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, doing what everyone else does around you. That means not just random people who go to, um, go to Glastonbury, but, but everyone around you, what everyone else around you does, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry, and they think it's strange that you don't just carry on doing that stuff. Have you ever been in that situation where something's happened in your life, you've had an encounter with God in your life, and you just find that it doesn't really make sense to carry on as you used to. It's, it's a dilemma, though, isn't it? Because you've still got the choice to do as you used to do. It's a funny place being a Christian in this life, isn't it? In the next life, it's going to be perfect. We're not going to have any trouble. We're not going to sin. But we're sort of, we don't have to sin anymore, but we're surrounded by sin and we get dragged back in in different ways. This week we were on the Alpha course and someone was uh, saying that this is what the Christian life is like. He's saying, your Christian life is like a house. 
And God comes in and he sweeps the house clean. And what you've got to do is shut all the windows and doors so that the enemy can't come in and rob you. And it's sort of quite a clever picture, isn't it? Because if you do that, then you know, what you've got protected in that little building of your life could stay pure, except the impurity is not just the devil. It's sort of on the air, isn't it? It comes in through the vents, and it's, it's still in there, in us. Although God's made us into a new creation, the, the reality of our lives is that there's still this battle going on, isn't there? It's why Peter says, don't do these things, because it's quite likely that the Christians will be doing these things. He wouldn't say don't if they weren't doing it. And although we might want to shut up our windows and doors and say, get away from me, <laughs> the reality is, Jesus says, Put your, let your light shine on a hill and get out there. Make a difference among people, normal people, and see how God can change their lives through you. And yet, and yet, there's something about what the man at Alpha was saying that's quite a good idea, isn't it? Because you can't just assume that carry on doing all the stuff you used to do is going to do you any better than it did before you met Jesus. If you meet Jesus and then carry on doing everything you did before you met Jesus, well, you can't really expect him to change your life very much. You've got to create space, haven't you, for him to move in and start to change the house that you live in to make it work with the gospel. And he says, look, if you are prepared to suffer mockings or persecution in this life for the gospel, then you're done with sin. You don't have to worry about it anymore. It's going to be sorted. He says, look, the end is near. There's going to be a judgment coming. The end is near. God is going to judge, and your spirit can live on. It's between doing the will of God and earthly desires, and he's going to bring judgment. Um, but then, if you live it out with him properly, you get to be uh, what Mike describes as a babe, a blessing to everyone everywhere. Be a blessing everyone everywhere. The blessing comes in four ways in verses 7 through 11, worth looking at in the passage. Firstly, um, you can pray. Now, I found this verse immensely helpful because I've often thought I should pray more. I don't know if you have. Um, I've often gone away resolute to pray more. I've even preached on it a few occasions. You may have heard me. This verse gives a very practical guide to praying. It says that there are two factors that will help you pray. One is self-control, and the other is being clear-minded. Can you see? Uh, and for me, the outworking of this, I'm musing around two things. If I spend an entire evening filling my head up with television <laughs> and filling my stomach up with uh, half a bottle of wine or something, <laughs> when I wake up in the morning to pray, how clear-minded <laughs> and how self-controlled have I been in order to gear myself up to pray? It's not the biggest standing start, is it? But if I filled my head up with what the Guardian has to say about religion or what the Mail's got to say about refugees or what the Telegraph's got to say about anything much, <laughs> and I've just indulged in things that I know aren't very good for me, and then I'm saying, oh, I'm not praying very well at the moment. <laughs> that may be a good clue. What a great verse this is. So if I want to be more of a prayer, then being clear-minded and self-controlled because of what Jesus has done for me is a good way through. Verse 7, commend it to you, learn it, digest it, get it in your head. And above all these things, he says, that's the first one, you can pray. The second thing is that you can love 
one another. Now, in verse, chapter 1, verse 22, we again get a clue as to how we can love one another. And, and it says this, it's on page 1218. Uh, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, you have sincere love for your brothers and sisters and love one another deeply from the heart. How can you love? Well, you've got to love from the heart. Um, it's with sincerity. But it comes by purifying yourself and obeying the truth. So we've already learned that we need to be clear-minded and to have a good conscience, but now we also know that if we obey the truth and purify ourselves, if we try and live God's way, we'll also be able to love. (laughs) We all know that the Bible's about love, don't we? But practically, how do you get there? You keep doing what God wants you to do, and it makes more room for the love to operate in. If you say, if you fling open the windows of that house and just go, come on in, devil... (laughs) It's going to be harder to love with his love because there won't be so much of his love in the house to come out of the house. If the house is full up with the love and then you fling open the doors, the love's going to push out and the devil's not going to get in either. <laughs> it's not that you're defensive there. You're filling up the love tank so it can come out by obeying the truth and doing what's right. So we're praying by being clear-minded and self-controlled. We're loving because we're pure, because we obey the truth. We're offering hospitality, thirdly, to one another without grumbling. I came across uh, an interesting article in a conservative evangelical magazine um, that had this startling revelation that the evangelism that might be effective in the 21st century is through hospitality. Uh, And those of you who've been involved in alpha courses and meeting place and stuff like that may have known that decades ago. But anyway, it was a startling revelation for the author of this magazine that hospitality might be the way ahead. And hospitality offered without grumbling breaks down all sorts of doors, doesn't it? Have you been in here to the meeting place, to the cafe at lunchtime, and seen the doors come tumbling down in people's lives as they get looked after by, by Jenny and Swapner and other members of the team? It's incredible, isn't it? See people coming in, being loved, being looked after. And we're called to do that in all of our buildings. Uh, the Mission Hall, St. Albans, Turnham Green, and yours and yours and yours and yours and yours and my homes. <laughs> And when we go for a drink with our friends at a cafe or a pub, offering hospitality to our colleagues at work as we, as we buy them lunch or as we look after them in some way, without grumbling, it breaks down barriers. Do you know, even better, though, probably, is receiving. <laughs> when Jesus sent the disciples out, he told them not to go and offer hospitality, but to go and receive hospitality, didn't he? And there's something about that, being someone who's not just, I've got something for you, I'm going to give this thing to you, here's my thing for you, but, oh, wow, I'd love to know what you've got for me. That shows that you're humble and you're willing and you're ready and you want to be a real friend with someone. You're not just, just discharging a duty. You're offering genuine hospitality to them. So love, prayer, hospitality, And finally, faithfully using the grace that God's given you. He just gives two examples. It could be many different things. One example he has is of speaking. And if you speak, you should speak as if you're speaking the very words of God. And the other example is of serving. And if you're serving in different ways, you should do it with the strength that God provides. In other words, here we've got four applications. Loving, praying, hospitality, and using the grace God's given you. 
And each of them are related into how much you let God have control of your life by obeying him. Even when you're going through suffering or difficulties. In fact, if you're going through suffering or difficulties, he says you're being like Jesus because he went through them as well. And if you can see that he's changed your life in that way, then you're going to live these things out well. I've got one other story from this uh, Iranian magazine I wanted to read you to illustrate the power of this gospel. It's an amazing gospel that comes into our lives and changes us from the inside out. It's a sad story, so bear with me. It's about a girl called Lala who had been abused by her brother sexually as a child. When she told her parents, they commanded her to remain silent because of the honor of her brother. When she became pregnant at the age of 16 by her brother, she was forced to give up her daughter to adoption against her wishes, again for the honor of her brother. She managed to escape her family eventually, but her husband was also abusive. She had another daughter called Ariana, but the sorrow of this poor lady's life was overwhelming. When Ariana, the daughter, was just seven years old, Lala, the mother, could bear life no longer, and she persuaded Ariana that they should die together. The plan was for them to inject each other before going to bed at night, but Ariana was afraid and wanted help. She regularly watched an Elam Christian children's TV program called Garden of Friends and Neighbors, and she liked the show's host who's called Auntie Mariam. So Ariana asked her mother, can we phone Auntie Mariam on the TV and ask her to pray for us? At these words, Lala felt her heart shake and she decided to call. A man answered the phone called Pastor Sirius. Lala passed the phone to Ariana. Can I talk to Auntie Mariam, Sirius? But Sirius replied, she's not here, I'm afraid, but I can take a message. Ariana said, please tell her my mummy and I have decided to commit suicide. I want to ask auntie to pray for us. Sirius was shocked. He asked to talk to her mother and Lala took the phone. Crying, she poured out her pain and as Sirius talked with her and prayed for her, Lala began to feel peace. After two hours on the phone, Lala gave her heart to Jesus. Ariana also gave her life to Christ and Sirius sent them a Bible and a children's Bible as well. For months, Sirius and his wife discipled Lala and Ariana through the internet. And when they finally met in person, there were many tears of joy. Sirius arranged for Lala to attend a women's conference for further discipleship and training. And through much tearful prayer ministry, she was granted the grace to forgive her family and her wounds began to heal. After returning home, she led her husband to Christ and now they have a small house church in their home and a growing ministry to other struggling couples. The gospel of Jesus is powerful and effective and changes lives in the most surprising places around the world. Here in a part of the world where we can walk into as many churches as we fancy within a 10-mile radius, where Bibles are available in 17 different versions on the apps on our phone and in the bookcases of even the public bookshops, we have such a chance, don't we, to be done with sin, to be obedient to Christ, to put to death the rubbish and say, may the love come in. We have such a chance to be clear-minded and self-control, such a chance to be pure, such a chance to offer hospitality without grumbling, such a chance to faithfully administer the grace 
that he's given us with all the immense provision he's poured into our lives today. So friends, let's be a babe and not be bad. <laughs> let's be a blessing everywhere because of the gospel and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.